Well, turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra 3 in our Ezra Nehemiah series that we're calling Great is Thy Faithfulness. While you're finding Ezra 3, let me give you a little bit of family history. Sylvia's dad had a few sayings that he repeated. They were pithy and short, some practical wisdom as a result of living life for eight decades. And one of the sayings that stuck with me that I I literally think about almost every day, it's very simple, you ready? There's always something. And you already know what that means, don't you? There's always something. And what that means is that when there's a blessing upon you and you seem to have victory, there seems to be something to dampen that mood or to ruin the moment or to cast a shadow. It's the flat tire on the way out of town on a glorious vacation. It's the unexpected double root canal the week after getting a tax refund. It's the wisdom gained with age, tempered with the physical problems acquired with age. It's the dryer breaking down the day after you bought a new refrigerator. And while we observe this on a small scale in the course of daily life, the returning Israelite exiles from Babylon, now back in Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, a few weeks after arriving in the year 537-536 BC, they experienced this idea of there's always something on a huge scale. And it forced them into a situation to choose whether or not to trust the Lord, even when there were shadows cast over them, even when there were difficulties, even when there were trials. They had the glorious return, and and this was a, a wondrous event that God is beginning the restoration of his nation. And already, from the time they arrive, there's always something. Now, as we progress through Ezra and Nehemiah in our series, Great is Thy Faithfulness, We're going through various proofs of God's faithfulness. And tonight, I want to concentrate on the issue of trust, of faith that our sovereign God knows what he's doing, even and especially when there's always something. I'm praying that each one of us can trust the Lord even more as a result of the lessons we're going to see in tonight's text. Now, to be sure, and we want to be clear about this, as we travel back 2,500 years to that group of 50,000 that have returned from Judah to Judah from Babylon, there are definitely happy moments in this chapter, even victorious moments, even glorious moments. But they're tempered, they're subdued at some points. Chapter 3 has the definite element of the Lord is blessing as we do His will, and there's, there's joy in that, there's glory in that. But in the midst of the blessing of doing His will, there are two dark shadows, fear and sorrow that just sort of overshadow everything. And chapter 3 really serves as a beautiful model for us to look longingly and desperately to our God for help in time of need and time of trouble. Israel now is not the Israel of old. Let me me put it to you this way. There are fewer people back in Israel, in Judah now, and in Jerusalem, than would have even taken up 10% of just their military when they escaped Egypt. Over 600,000 men just in the military. Now there's just 50,000 total in the land. They're a shadow of their former selves. And God has placed these returned exiles in a position of total and desperate reliance upon the Lord. God can only truly demonstrate His faithfulness when there's nothing else to rely upon from a human standpoint. That's all they had was Him. And in this victory of return, which is yet subdued by fear and sorrow, we're going to see in this chapter a very important principle. And I I hope this is what you take away tonight. That principle is that God will prove that He deserves your trust. He will prove that He deserves your trust. And that trust is all centered around the theme of forcing you to rely on Him, putting you in a position, cornering you where you have nobody else to turn to, even when circumstances cause fear and sorrow and grief and pain. And the focal point, the center of this trust is worship. That's where we center our trust. It's where we center our faith. And I'd like to just read to you our text tonight, and then we'll walk into some reasons why God deserves your trust. Ezra chapter 3, it's not very long, we'll read the entire chapter together. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grants they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, made a new beginning, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Tonight, I'd like to show you four reasons why God deserves your trust. God deserves your trust. And all the reasons are centered on where God is shepherding you in the midst of fearful and even sorrowful circumstances. And that is to worship. And so we'll center these four reasons on worship. The first reason God deserves your trust. God drives us to worship in the midst of uncertainty. God drives us to worship. In the midst of uncertainty. Now in verse 1 we see a rare and glorious occurrence. Unity among the people of God. Now you may remember that last time I pointed out that although there was a general enthusiasm for returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Some of the individuals quickly strayed from their commitment. Chapter 2 verse 68 you remember some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem made free will offerings for the house of God. But on this day, things have changed. Several weeks after arriving now, trumpets are sounded to give the call to gather together. And for this day, there is total unity. When the seventh month came, verse 1, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The text doesn't tell us what caused this unity, but an educated guess would be the actual gravity of their situation actually sinking in. That they are at any given time one quick invasion away from total annihilation. They're weak as far as a nation goes. And God provided leaders for the exile, and two of them are highlighted now in verse 2, Jeshua and Zerubbabel rightly assess that the correct priority of the people Gathered together is to worship God. That's what they needed to do. And since all worship is based in sacrifice in order to rightly relate to God on the basis of payment for sin, 
they rebuilt the altar of God to offer burnt offerings, to be in right covenant relationship, to be in right standing before God. This would be what we might call a, a pivotal moment in worship. In the course of your life, God uses circumstances that hurt. He uses circumstances that cause anxiety. And in the midst of those circumstances, he provides memorable or instrumental or, as I said, pivotal moments in worship. These moments are, are humbling. They might be characterized as aha moments. It might be a simple sermon that drives you to your knees. It might be a book that you read. It might be a single conversation with another believer. It might be a moment such as this in the case of united, gathered corporate worship together. These are moments in which the gravity and the weightiness and the heaviness of what it means to follow God sinks in. And what it means to claim to be in covenant relationship with God, it bears down on you in weightiness and heaviness. That this is, These are eternal things. And I want you to notice the focus of the people's worship. It wasn't to create an emotion. It wasn't to get something from God. It wasn't to sense a vibe or to generate passion. No, it was a gathering to rebuild the altar of God so that people might sacrifice to God because they are sinners. It was an acknowledgement of their sin as well as a testimony of the holiness and the purity of God Almighty. And what is their worship based in? Verse 2, as it is written in the law of Moses. Their worship was based solely in truth. It was based in the revelation of God. There's no generating of emotion here. There's no, there's no false sense of, of joy that's based in anything other than truth. And this is what God drives them to during this time of uncertainty. When the excitement and the emotion of returning has been replaced by the reality of their extreme vulnerability, when, when the excitement and the emotion of coming home finally is now replaced by the, the facts that they're in a really bad situation, they're very vulnerable, they're driven to worship. The church of Jesus Christ, in our country in particular, is, seems to be continually fighting against a hedonistic, self-centered, man-focused definition of worship which basically says that worship is some sort of a product offered to me to give me something, usually an emotion or a vibe or a sensation. In fact, that definition of worship has become so pervasive that churches tend to design their so-called worship around what pleases people. Music styles, clothing styles, brevity of preaching, preaching that's all about you instead of all about God. But the true worship here to which God drives his people is focused on him. It's something given to him. In the form of obedience to the word of God, in the form of a sobering unity of the faith, in the form of sacrifice to the Lord according to the law. This is so far away from the American evangelical conception of worship, the two can't even be compared. Why were the people gathered as one man? Why was there unity? Well, it's because there was a gravity, there was a sobriety that they needed to appear before God, they needed to, to renew their covenant obedience to Him, to be in right relationship through sacrifice to Him. And this is where someone might say, but that was under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant, so our worship is supposed to be happier and more joyful. It was kind of dark and bloody in the Old Testament. It's just, it's just nicer in the New Testament, isn't it? Of course, there's an element of joy and delight to our worship, but listen very carefully. Under the old covenant, the faithful were very cognizant that innocent animals had to die in order to maintain covenant relationship with God, to point to the need for sacrifice and for propitiation of the wrath of God against sin. And that was bad enough. At Passover, you, you took this precious little lamb that's unblemished and you brought it into your home for three days. And the children petted the lamb and the family got to know the lamb and then the father slaughtered the lamb. That's just under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, Jesus Christ was sacrificed once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
And we don't gather for worship, cognizant that innocent animals must die. We gather with the sobering knowledge that to be in right relationship with God under the new covenant, the precious holy lamb of God, he had to die. The most cruel death ever imagined. And he had to endure the wrath of God all by himself on the cross instead of you and instead of me. So please forgive me if fog machines and concert-like atmospheres and gospel-missing, people-centered, so-called sermons and every possible attempt to make people happy in a so-called worship gathering don't excite me. And perhaps please forgive me if when social psychological techniques are used to create certain emotions and when conditioned responses are used to create external appearances of worship, that I don't wish we could replicate that in our church. When we gather for worship, it is with blood on our hands. It is with the knowledge that a death occurred instead of yours. Yes, the blood of Jesus is precious blood, but never forget that it is shed blood. Pain had to occur. There is joy, yet there must be trembling. There is peace, yet there must be sobriety. There is victory, and yet there must be the remembrance of what this victory over sin cost God. It's the same as when we celebrated the Lord's table this morning. It's a joyous time, and yet a sobering time. We hold in our hands a cup symbolizing blood. But here's the incredible news. Because of God driving us to worship in the midst of uncertainty, it gives us a right perspective on everything else. Because proper worship reminds us that when everything else is uncertain, when when there is fear, when there's sorrow, God is faithful. God is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. That's why God-focused worship is so important because He never changes. People-focused worship is worthless. It's idolatry. And even though we don't originally arrive to worship in order to receive something, we end up receiving so much, don't we? We receive comfort and joy and determination. We receive a a rebooted faith in a sovereign God. There's a second reason God deserves your trust, and this is connected to worship. Second reason is because God uses helplessness to motivate obedient worship. God uses helplessness to motivate obedient worship. I've alluded alluded to this already, but what was the motivation to return to right covenant worship of God? Was it because that there was a new church in town handing out backpacks to all the teenagers before school starts? Was it because they had a great children's program? Was it because they had a wonderful new building? Was it any of that? No, it was fear. They were afraid. And if I could put it in New Testament terms, they ran to church. And you should know this, that God is not really trying to take that fear away. Instead, He's using this fear to make them cling to Him in worship. Chapter 3, verse 3, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Burnt offering conveyed the idea of total commitment to the Lord, which included a recognition of a person's position as sinner. That The burnt offering is consumed, is completely burned up. And it shows the consuming nature of the wrath of God against sin and the need for utter and complete and consuming commitment to the Lord. In fact, in verses 2 through 6, this idea is emphasized six times. Burnt offerings, burnt offerings, burnt offerings, burnt offerings, burnt offerings, burnt offerings. God placed them in this position of helplessness. The surrounding peoples included the pseudo-faithful worshipers of God who mixed Yahweh worship with pagan religion. Chapter 4 talks about them. They also included Gentile peoples brought to the northern territory of Israel after the Assyrian conquest in 722 B.C., sometimes called Samaritans, especially as they intermarried with some Jews. The text doesn't tell us what the fear is, but something about these surrounding peoples caused so much fear in the returned exiles that they fairly ran to worship together. They were unified by a common fear. 
It may have been fear of overwhelming opposition, which we see a lot of throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. And please remember that in the ancient Near East, opposition didn't just mean somebody who disagrees with you. Successful opposition often ended in the slaughter of tens of thousands of people. In fact, verses 4 and 5 here indicate that these returned exiles started keeping the sacrificial law with tremendous precision. They were concerned about obedience. The Feast of Booths, to remember their escape from Egypt 900 years earlier. The daily burnt offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the new moon offerings, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord. And what's the key phrase? It's in verse 4. As it is written. That's what they were going for. And how the Jews wanted to obey God in their worship. There was no self-styled worship. There was no made-up worship. They adhered strongly to what theologians call the regulative principle. That our worship of God is solely and only in prescribed ways. We don't get to make it up. And the key and central feature of that principle is that worship is based in sacrifice. Always. There is no proper worship of God without sacrifice because you cannot be right before God without sacrifice. So what was this time of helplessness doing for the Jews' worship? What was it doing for them? It was motivating them to obedience, to obedient worship. Or if I could put this in New Testament terms, it was motivating them to sanctification. As Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And they wanted to stick as closely as they could to the truth of God. In fact, Psalm 4 gives a beautiful illustration of this interplay, this relationship between helplessness and sanctification in worship. In Psalm 4, the situation is that King David is basically surrounded by his enemies. This is likely during the time when the son Absalom led a rebellion against David. And David famously prays in verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And at the end of the psalm, he famously places his trust in the Lord's faithfulness. In verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me the dwell in safety. And we kind of tend to skip from one book to the other and say, those are great verses to help me trust the Lord. But sometimes we go a little bit too fast through the middle. In the middle of the psalm is an exhortation from David to have a humble and a right heart of worship and self-examination. Verses 4 and 5, he gives the admonition, be angry and do not sin. Paul quotes this in Ephesians. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You see, it's in these times of helplessness. These are prime times for self-examination. And it appears that the Jews took stock and decided, decided that total obedience to the word of God was a must. That they had no choice. Remember the key phrase in verse 4, as it is written. For us, when you're helpless, when you're vulnerable, as King David wrote in Psalm 4, that's the time to offer right sacrifices, as it were, and we could extrapolate this to simply living life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We see this connection made in the, in the famous verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is exactly what happened to them. They're in trouble. They're, they're vulnerable. They're helpless. And they have run to the word of God, and they are carefully and with precision obeying God. Or if I could put this another way, your time of helplessness is your greatest opportunity for confession and repentance. And you might ask, confession of what? Repentance from what? How about everything you can think of? Everything you can think of. In verses 4 and 5 here, there's this aggressive return to obedience. They've read the law. They're looking carefully at what they're supposed to do. And since God didn't try to alleviate the fear, the fear caused self-examination and it led to proper worship. Are you seeing that the sovereignty of God to put you in positions of other helplessness is perhaps the greatest favor he can do for you. It drives you to being formed as Christ 
It drives you to being formed in the image of Christ. The Apostle Paul told the Galatian church that he, he labors and he is in anguish until Christ is formed in them. So God drives us to worship in the midst of uncertainty. God uses helplessness to motivate us to obedient worship. There's a third reason God deserves your trust connected to worship. And that is God returns us to worship that is for Him. God returns us to worship that is for Him. And I've mentioned this a little bit already, but I really want to nail this point home. How sad it is when a suffering believer desperately looks for a good feeling or a jolt of spiritual go juice in a worship setting instead of putting self aside and humbly worshiping God for His own sake and for His own glory, not for yours. Now we transition from the offerings and the worship given around the altar and now get to the original purpose of the return from exile and that is to rebuild the temple. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now it transitions. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. We get another reminder of the people's obedience to the will of God. They had established a deal with the peoples of Lebanon according to the grant they had from the king to get building materials needed for the temple. And this is just a, a summary statement here. Key fact. This is very important. These are the same building materials and laborers, the same situation listed in 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-12, through 12, that were brought for Solomon's temple 400 years earlier. You see, the building materials and the laborers listed here aren't noted just to tell us the particulars of construction. It shows that the people were attempting to return in every way possible to everything they knew to be worshipful for the Lord's sake. They're getting back to their roots. They're going back to what is right, what is correct. And look at this movement now toward God-centered worship. Now, I'll give you two or three pieces of evidence here of this movement toward God-centered worship. First of all, the leaders and all who came from act from captivity were intently focused on laying the foundation of the temple, at least at first. Later on, we'll see that they get distracted, but for this moment, they're very intentional. They want this started. Verse 8, Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. This is a massive effort. And what's the key phrase in those two verses? In the house of the Lord. That's their focus this is a far cry from the pagan worship and the, the blasphemous high places of worship of false Canaanite gods which originally landed them in exile. All that's done. They return to the purity of being intentional in worshiping Yahweh as the one true living God. They had returned to the Shema that the Lord is God. He is one. He is the only one. The second bit of evidence of this move toward God-centered worship. Now when the foundation had been completed, again there's a return to the old ways, to the days of pure worship of God. And we see this in the preparation for worship in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David King of Israel. What's the key phrase? According to the directions of David, King of Israel. This is 400 years ago. Before Solomon, David's son, ever built the temple, while God was not going to have David actually build the temple, David did everything but build the temple. 1 Chronicles 6, 31 records that David put together the original music worship ministry for the temple. 1 Chronicles 16, 4-7 
says that he appointed Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And it names the names of those who were in charge of that. There were some who were playing harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals and some who were blowing trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. That every day there were trumpet players, God's instrument, to stand before the ark and just proclaim God. Then on the first day, David appointed that thanksgivings be sung to the Lord by Asaph and by his brothers. First Chronicles 25 describes a great choir, not just volunteers, but literally the most gifted singers, 288 of them, just to be in the temple and praise the Lord. In fact, I discovered something in studying this. I'd never seen this before. First Chronicles 25.8 says that some of these in the choir were teachers and some were students, and yet all ministered in the house of the Lord. The point is, is that David was sponsoring music lessons so that people would learn how to praise God musically. In total, this is mind-boggling, 1 Chronicles 23 records that David appointed 4,000 musicians. And so in their own small way, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals. In their own small way, the exiles are trying to return to the glory days of high worship of God-exalting worship in which instruments and voices fill the temple and inundate Jerusalem with the praise of Yahweh. Just to be clear, 1 Chronicles 25.1 says that the musicians prophesied. What does that mean? It means that they sang and accompanied songs of the faith, probably the Psalms, that they sang truth. Their worship was focused on the word of God, on truth, on exalting Yahweh. What's the best way to exalt God? Say the words that he wrote back to him about himself. Here's a third bit of evidence of their move toward God-centered worship. Not only were they focused on the house of the Lord and preparing to worship according to the directions of David, king of Israel, but now for the first time in generations God's people gathered at the temple, at least at the foundation of the temple, to pour out their hearts in praise. And look how they did it. In verse 11, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They sang responsively. There's two ways to think about this, and it may have been one or the other or both. It, it could be leaders singing a line of a song and then the people responding. That's how they taught them. Or it could be, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, two companies of people singing back and forth to one another. In either case, it was glorious. And look at the clear focus here as I read from verse 11, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. They praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This isn't a a gathering of self-centered saints looking to hear something so-called relevant about me. Looking for a really hip worship band that looks urban enough and cool enough to put on a show to make me feel good. And you notice, they are afraid. Verse 3 told us this. They're surrounded by enemies. They're beset by uncertainty. And yet they do the one thing they ought to do. They return to God-centered and God-exalting worship. This is what theologians sometimes call high worship, in which the focus is on exalting God, not man, in which the truth of God is the defining feature, the defining aspect of worship, in which the music does its best to ascend to the heights of heaven with every ounce of effort possible and with all the people participating rather than just being an audience. And listen, just talking about this, don't you get a sense of your troubles fading into the background? Don't you get that sense of of your troubles becoming less powerful over you as God is exalted, as God is praised, as the last book of the the last verse, rather, of the book of Psalms says, very last verse in Psalms, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is so glorious for us, and it answers the question, what do I do in the midst of uncertainty? 
The answer is you return to pure worship, worship based in truth and with your whole self fully devoted to that moment. Or as Jesus put it very simply, worshiping in spirit and in what? Truth. God drives us to worship in the midst of uncertainty. God uses helplessness to motivate us to obedient worship. God returns us to worship that is for Him. And the fourth reason that God deserves your trust connected to worship is that God knows your worship is mixed with sorrow. God knows your worship is mixed with sorrow. 400 years earlier, when Solomon built the original temple of God according to the specifications that God gave, it was a tremendous effort. 1 Kings 6 records that the temple proper, just the building itself, was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. He also built a vestibule in front of the house of God, a separate building, and he built side chambers all around the temple, three stories high of various rooms and chambers all around the temple. It was built of solid stone, cut at quarries and brought to the, to the site. The rest of 1 Kings 6 describes the ornate nature of the finished temple in dozens of verses. It's grand, it's golden, it's glorious in its detail. 1 Kings 7, again, takes dozens of verses to describe the temple furnishings, the altar, the cups, the basins, the, the silver and the gold things. And it was these things, by the way, that the exiles brought back with them, Ezra chapter 1. What did it take to build the glorious temple to the one true living God? 2 Chronicles 2 verse 2 says, And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens, and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 3,600 to oversee them. 153,600 men to build the temple. How many people, not men, but men and women, how many people returned from exile? Just shy of 50,000. So to what level do you think they'd be able to replicate the temple of Solomon? It wasn't even close. Look at what's happening during this first worship service to Yahweh at the temple foundations in verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. When they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. The people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Tremendous sorrow on the part of many. Can I tell you this? The Lord knows that even as you worship Him, He knows that you're living a life that has tremendous sorrows and hurts and disappointments. He knows that your praises are often mingled with tears. We see this in this building almost every Sunday. That as you hear the glorious truths of God, as you sing the precious words derived from Scripture, the sorrow in your heart sometimes bubbles to the surface, doesn't it? And as it bubbles to the surface, God ministers to you and He comforts you. And what's the implication of this worship which is driven by fear? Verse 3, intermingled with sorrow. The clear implication is that God is not finished yet. He's not done. The work of building His kingdom has not come to a conclusion. And this scene of worship, to the best of their ability, at a temple foundation that's a shadow of the former one, this scene of worship that's tinged with great fear and overwhelming sorrow, what does it prove? It proves that God's kingdom program is still progressing. This is not the Israel that shall be but a down payment of sorts of a coming more glorious time. Do you see that God deserves your trust? And this trust is expressed in worship, even and especially in the moments of most uncertainty. The small band of returned exiles were driven to worship by desperate circumstances. They were doing the will of God, but that included fear and included sorrow in the midst of doing His will. That was part of the deal. And what was their response in this moving chapter? It was the unified worship of Yahweh in spirit and in truth. 
And I wonder how would this help you grow in your Christ-likeness? How does knowledge of we, what we've learned tonight help you grow to become more like Christ? This chapter made me think of the Lord Jesus. The moment of his greatest earthly sorrow It's recorded late on a Thursday night, just moments before he would be arrested. Jesus and his disciples came to the Garden of Gethsemane. He took Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him. Matthew 26 records, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Did you notice Jesus' situation? Sorrow and trouble literally means distress of the soul. But Jesus' determination to do the will of God even in the midst of this sorrow, was very clear. And he does the one thing necessary in this moment of supreme sorrow, in this moment of the knowledge of all the horrible suffering that was going to come to him. He went to God in prayer. He went to God. And in fact, this singular focus in this communion with his father strengthened him and prepared him to face an entire night of trials and beatings and the morning crucifixion. And never during the trials and never during his beatings did he ever show the same sorrow and distress that he did in that moment of intimate communion with his father. And in fact, when we went through the Gospel of John, what we saw that was after this moment of, of, of deep anguish in which he literally sweat drops of blood in the anxiety of knowing the suffering that was coming to him. Once he got up off his knees, there's a strength to him. And the soldiers coming to arrest him say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And down they go. He was strengthened. And for you, in your moment of sorrow and distress, that is precisely when you can simply assume that God is driving you to worship. God is driving you into the loving arms of his presence, not to get an answer, not to get a good feeling, but to give him worship such that your heart is set on him. And when you're thinking only about him, who do you forget about? Me. You forget about yourself. Then and only then are you strengthened for uncertain times. This text certainly leads us down the road to the cross as well. There's an element of strength and rejoicing that you have that these faithful Jews in Ezra 3 didn't have. They were very eager to have a temple in which to worship God. But because of the cross of Christ, Jesus said in John 4.21 that the day was coming when a worshiper need not go to Jerusalem to worship God. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and receive Him as Savior, now full and total access to God is granted anywhere, anytime, not by means of a human priest, but by means of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And because of this, the Christian has the tremendous privilege of drawing strength from the gospel, of rehearsing the gospel truths, of receiving the Lord's table as we did this morning in remembrance of the blood of Christ, of singing the gospel, of hearing the gospel preached and proclaimed. This is your anchor. I mean, what's one of the great names we have for Jesus? It is the Savior. Sorrow and fear such as the Israelites were experiencing is exactly the time to immerse yourself in the gospel. Now, why is that so important? I'll give you one big reason. One major component of the gospel is the consummation of salvation, isn't it? The, the final salvation of literally your body even in resurrection. That whatever sorrow and fear is happening, you can always say the best is yet to come. You can always say that. And in fact, we can relate this concept of the best is yet to come back to Ezra 3 as we see a clear connection from Ezra 3 to the coming kingdom of Christ. Because this leads us down the road, not just to the cross, but to the road of Christ's coming kingdom. You remember the older men who were weeping when they saw the foundation. The only reason given is that they were the ones who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple. 
I want to drill down on this just for a moment, though. Turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. It's right near the end of the Old Testament. It's going to be forward in your Bible about 500 pages or so. It's right before Zechariah, right before Malachi, right before Matthew. Haggai is extremely important in understanding Ezra and Nehemiah because Haggai the prophet was there. He was there. He was there with God's people to spur them on to obedience and rebuilding the temple. And Haggai, in chapter 2, speaks directly to this disappointment, to this sorrow at the pitiful nature of the new temple compared to Solomon's temple. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. That's the same as Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak. It's just a variation in name. The high priest and to all the remnants of the people and say, here it is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Remember, these are the words of God through the prophet Haggai. And God knows full well that they see the new temple foundation as nothing compared to the former glory of God's house. And yet look what God calls them to be. Verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And look at this, fear not. First he drives them to worship by their fear, and now he says, fear not. Why? Because they've worshipped. Remember the fear that drove the Jews to worship, and this was good for them to do. Now at the same time, God exhorts them, be strong. Do not fear. But why would he say this? What's the basis for God telling them not to fear? Well, all of a sudden, God transports the listener to a future time, to literally the same geographical spot of the temple, but a time far in the future. It's a time future even from our standpoint. It hasn't happened yet. Verse 6, far in the future. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What has happened such that the heavens and the earth And the sea have been shaken and all the nations have been shaken so that every nation recognizes Jerusalem and brings their treasures in. When will that be? When Christ has returned. That's what he's promising them. Zechariah, the other prophet ministering to the Jews in this time, he outlines the return of Christ and victory over his enemies. In Zechariah 14, verse 14 of Zechariah 14 says that in that day, quote, the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Verse 16 of Zechariah 14 says that every year, all the nations will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And remember, you never come to worship empty-handed. And in Haggai 2, the last verse, or verse 9 rather, of this section, God says that the latter glory, the coming glory of the temple shall be greater than the former. What does that mean? That the glory of the coming temple will be even greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Why? Same answer, because Christ has returned in all his glory. What was missing from Solomon's temple? The Messiah. Verse 9 says, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 9 says that the Messiah will come and reign as the Prince of Peace. By the way, do you notice how many times the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, what does that imply? Angels everywhere. No more sorrow, no more distress, no more fear. So when uncertainty abounds, when sorrow 
is upon you, when fear is upon you, what do you do? You try to solve the problem? That becomes a problem when the problem is unsolvable. What if, like Israel, you're surrounded by enemies who cause fear? What do you do? You do what Job did when terrible loss and sorrow came to him. Job 1.20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's his sorrow. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. Because Job knew that this was not the end. This was not the final chapter. In fact, God told Job the final chapter and he declared it. Prophetically in Job 19.25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He, that is Christ, will stand upon the earth. And after my sin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is the doctrine of the resurrection of the saints in the Old Testament. So I would have to say from experience and from this chapter that Sylvia's dad was correct. There's always something. But the word of God counteracts that with the grand truth that there's always someone. There's always someone. And that someone is our sovereign God who is moving and working and will bring about a glorious culmination, not only of all of redemptive history, but a glorious culmination of your little part in it. God deserves your trust. Amen? Let's trust Him together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this Word that is so clear, so inspiring, and we relate to it. These Precious people of yours, just a small band of them surrounded by fierce and angry nations. Driven to worship by their fear and yes, worshiping even in the midst of sorrow. So we relate to them. But we also see that this leads down the road to the cross of Christ. By which as members of the new covenant relationship with you, we have hope for our eternal salvation and the culmination of that salvation, which leads all the way to the kingdom of Christ, when the glory of God will be revealed on this earth in the person of your Son, the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords, to whom all the nations will bring their treasures in worship, in honor, in reverence, and in awe. May we have that attitude of worship now, even as we look forward to that coming kingdom. And we pray in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.